In this episode, I host a dialogue between Dr. Ian Wickramasekra, Bern Buddhist practitioner and associate professor of mindfulness-based transpersonal counseling at Naropa University, and Petra Tauchner, a student of the University of Vienna with a degree in microbiology and genetics, whose current bachelor's thesis in psychology is based on Dr. Ian's empathic involvement theory of hypnosis. In the first part of this interview, Dr. Ian gives an overview of the history of the mysteries and theories of hypnosis, lays out his own journey in formulating EIT, and discusses its implications for therapy and enlightenment. Then Dr. Ian and Petra dialogue about how to increase one's own hypnotizability, why empathy does not guarantee pro-social outcomes, and the very particular empathy skills of psychopaths, including a case study of Dr. Ian's own psychopathic client. Dr. Ian also recounts his own experiences practicing Sokcha, meeting spiritual gurus, and taking ayahuasca, while Petra reveals her own passion for first-hand research, including a life-changing 21-day water fast undertaken to reset her dopamine system. So without further ado, Dr. Ian Wickramasekra and Petra Tauchner. Dr. Ian Wickramasekra and Petra Tauchner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So glad to be here. Hi, I'm so happy to be talking with you today. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you so much, Dr. Vikramasekra, for taking your time. And yeah, I'm so excited to be asking you some questions later. Wonderful, wonderful. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm so excited about this episode. Petra is a student at the University of Vienna, and she and her colleagues are working on a research project for their bachelor thesis about the relationship between cognitive empathy and hypnotizability, and they're using as their main explanation, your theory, Dr. Ian, empathetic involvement theory, or EIT. And so in this episode, Dr. Ian has generously made himself available to discuss uh, his theory here on the podcast and to dialogue with Petra about her research and her current thinking on questions about EIT in the field in general. And so in the first part of the interview, I'm going to ask Dr. Ian about EIT, and so we'll establish a good grounding in the theory and its history. And then I'll step back and Dr. Ian and Petra will begin their dialogue. And so I do want to say a big thank you to both uh, Dr. Ian and Petra for agreeing to have this conversation here on the podcast. I'm so delighted for the, the two of you to meet and I just can't wait to get started. All right. So first, Dr. Ian, I'd like to ask you about empathetic involvement theory. In your 2015 article, Mysteries of Hypnosis and the Self are Revealed by the Psychology and Neuroscience of Empathy, which appeared in the American Journal of Clinical Hypnosis, you write about EIT. The EIT is a unified transpersonal theory of hypnosis in the self, which weaves together empathetic elements of Dzogchen, neurodissociative, neuroscience, psychoanalytic, sociocognitive, and other theories by proposing that hypnotic phenomena are inherently characterized by their deep involvement with processes of empathy and the self. Mm. And you go on to describe the two main, uh, in that article, which I will link in the show notes, it's available uh, for download at ResearchGate. Um, you, you then go on to describe the two main theories of hypnosis in the following way. You write, researchers around the world have struggled for over 200 years to resolve a seemingly intractable debate about whether the nature of hypnosis is primarily a social, psychological related phenomenon, or rather a special state of consciousness based on advanced mind, body, and or neuropsychological talents. The debate started from the earliest times in the history of hypnosis and has been particularly vexing to resolve 
due to the impressive amount of evidence that each theoretical camp has produced. And you're going to say that any theory of hypnosis that wishes to resolve its central mysteries must at least account for and integrate these two strong traditions of hypnosis in some way. And then finally, you, you mentioned that I assert that these mysteries of hypnosis and the self can be explained by a close examination of how empathy and its embodiment in the mind and brain influence them both. So would you be so kind as to summarize your empathetic involvement theory, uh, how it resolves those, as you put them, central mysteries of hypnosis, and also give us a sense as to how you arrived at the theory, which I think itself is actually quite relevant. Yes, uh, thank you. What a wonderful uh, lead up to that question. Uh, fantastic. Uh, really, I feel I must have given you a lot of money or something. <laughs> you received such a good question. Thank you. Uh, good Lord. Uh, well, uh, uh, I feel like you're right about uh, hmm, many times it's easier to talk about this theory with some personal experience uh, where uh, I got a lot of my insights uh, that I wanted to research and then proceed to the research because the research is a very uh, fantastic, uh, powerful area of hypnosis research, but it involves the most paradoxical elements of human experience that most people do experience and discount. So anyway, having said that, let me get to the easy thing I think most everyone can appreciate in their own life in some way. Uh, so. Uh, I first started thinking about relationship between empathy and hypnosis uh, while I was in uh, graduate school. And I had the great fortune to be doing a lot of work uh, actually with my father and uh, Jay Cates Beware and Alan Pope in different labs. Uh, and I was doing a lot of measurement of hypnotic ability, which uh, is a really fun way to learn about hypnosis actually is you know, go and give these tests of hypnotic ability like the uh, Harvard and Stanford measures were the ones I was using the most. And they have these wonderful items on them of like amazing phenomena. Like uh, you say to a person uh, while they're in hypnotic trance, uh, oh, there seems to be uh, this uh, message of playing over uh, announcement. And now a voice is starting and it is giving you an announcement and it is saying something to you. And uh, then if the person is very gifted at hypnosis, uh, sometimes they hear something, some kind of announcement, like, oh, the, I think there's a fire drill or something it's talking about. Or there's another one where you say, uh, and you've been paying such close attention while we have been in hypnosis together that you probably haven't noticed this fly that's buzzing, flying around the room. And you've been paying such close attention in hypnosis, you never noticed. But now that I draw your attention to it, you can hear this fly that's buzzing round and round your head, buzzing. Zzz, hear the buzzing. <laughs> you know, and it's really wonderful stuff. I, I can experience it myself and, and I love it. Um, and I think it's quite wonderful that people have these mind-body abilities. Uh, it's really fascinating. But a central question arises about what kinds of people have this ability to experience this, you know, uh, positive and negative hallucinations and be able to uh, transform the experience of pain into joy, uh, to be able to run faster, to be able to uh, perform better as an athlete, 
to do uh, so many amazing things and get over problems, simple problems of anxiety, depression, anger. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> what are we to understand about these people that have this amazing gift? Uh, and one of the really amazing problems, which uh, you read in the question, uh, is that we have over 200 years of theorizing around uh, at this point, actually well over 200 years of theorizing uh, what kinds of people are good at this, but most of them are inaccurate. <laughs> They're just totally wrong. It's like uh, first, uh, you know, theories where it had something to do with biomagnetism, you know, like your Darth Sidious shooting people with rays, you know, Mesmer said this kind of thing. And uh, I'm actually somewhat disappointed to report to you that in uh, over uh, 40 years of using hypnosis, not once did electric rays come out of me. I keep waiting, I would love for it to happen, but it's never happened. So it's not electric rays. Uh, then there was, uh, even by Benjamin Franklin, uh, way back, you know, in the uh, um, 1780s, uh, it came up with this idea. Maybe it had something to do with uh, something like we might call suggestibility. And over the years, uh, particularly when Bernheim came on the scene, someone developed uh, this guy named Hippolyte Bernheim, who was one of the teachers of Sigmund Freud, said, hey, yeah, maybe this has to do with you know, something like suggestibility. He actually had a different word for it. It was creditivite, but we didn't get into that too much, but it's something like suggestibility. But here's the problem. Uh, uh, as early as the 19, uh, late 1920s, and then throughout uh, the rest of the last uh, century, there's just study after study that showed that people, there are people who are more suggestible than others. You know, like if they watch, TV advertising or something like this, then they will buy the George Foreman grill. And if you go into the home, they'll have many products from the QVC shopping network. And there are people who literally are more suggestible than other people. And that's an interesting thing. However, um, those people are no more likely to be good at hypnosis than anyone else. Occasionally, some of them will be gifted at hypnosis, but some of them are actually pretty bad at hypnosis, even though they want to be. Like people have actually come to me and say, I'm a very suggestible person. I'm sure I'll be good at hypnosis. And I say, oh, good, let's, let's see. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes they are. And sometimes they're not. It's very interesting. Suggestibility and uh, um, are probably the, the most accurate way of saying this. The suggestibility that we find in hypnosis is not related to the suggestibility outside of hypnosis. So just being a suggestible person does not give you the kind of mind-body integration that is necessary to be really good at hypnosis. Um, and so that's that was a really interesting thing. Uh, and, you know, there's other mysteries, you know, involving whether it's a state of consciousness that some people experience and other people don't. But even that is uh, somewhat controversial, even at this point, because there are high hypnotizables who report never experiencing an alternate uh, an altered state of consciousness. I've even uh, measured some myself. And uh, they can do things with hypnosis that I can, including surgical hypnosis. I'm like, I, don't, I guess they, they know what they're talking about. You know, I'm the one administering it, but they're the one who's doing it. You know? and so if it's not altered state of consciousness, 
per se, even though there's evidence they're involved for some people, um, and it's not suggestibility. And what the heck could this be? And so while I was measuring the hypnotic ability of uh, all these uh, hundreds of people uh, for my dad and uh, Alan Pope and uh, Kate's Beware and other people that I was doing this work with and later Ron Pacala um, at the VA Medical Center in uh, Coatesville, I started thinking, you know, what, what is this, you know? And one thing that I noticed uh, right on is that when you get someone who is a high hypnotizable, they have a very interesting uh, kind of, um, yeah, I guess the personality is the right way to say this. They're very fun people. And they were far and away more fun to work with than the low hypnotizables. And that's even before the experiment started. Like what I noticed is that highs are come into the room and they're all like, oh, what is this about? What is this and that, you know, and interested in me? What is your name? How you get into this? And very sociable people. And uh, low hypnotizables, some could be like that, but much, much less often. And I thought that was interesting that they're just more affable and it was more fun to work with them. And I started thinking about that further and right around the same time, uh, I began to study client-centered psychotherapy, which was a, a very particular form of psychotherapy in which uh, you attempt to use nothing but a pure relationship to help people. And the main thing that you do uh, is to set a very close empathic environment with the person. And uh, now, I had already been researching and using hypnosis on myself since I was 10 years old. I used to have migraine headaches. So when they told me that I was not to use hypnosis with people when doing therapy, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I like this, you know. But the more I read the theory of uh, Carl Rogers' writings about empathy and how beautiful it could be to help people using their own intuitive uh, wisdom and love that they possess innately. And that is really his theory. You don't need to uh, tell people what to do. You need to you know, be like a mirror to them, let them see their own wisdom and love. And the more I read that, I, I started to feel guilty about using <laughs> hypnosis. Uh, uh, and I thought, you know, this is just, maybe it's not necessary. And so even though I'm still doing uh, the research and uh, you know, some clinical work for others. Uh, in my own cases, I, I actually gave up using hypnosis altogether. And I just tried to form this wonderful, close empathic relationship with people. And uh, I found that it was amazingly effective that just listening to people and fully uh, validating what I had heard that they had said, that this allowed people to finally finish their own thoughts and to go deep into their own phenomenological experience in a way that they got deep healing. And uh, after a while, I noticed something else, which was, I was just going completely into trance. It's like, I'd be with these people. And, uh, you know, I, I would just feel like I was in this completely altered state of consciousness. Some of the ways that I noticed it was that, first of all, uh, I would think that the only half the session had gone by in about 30 minutes and someone is knocking on the door 
saying, you know, hey, the room, he is this room, we have it next, you know, because I was a graduate student, I didn't have my own office. They're like, hey, you know, you, you and your client got to get out. <laughs> oh, whoops. You know? I was like, what happened? You know, and uh, so this uh, time distortion is one of these uh, classic signs of uh, altered states of consciousness, not just in hypnosis, but in many other things like psychedelic research and other good, cool things that would be going on more often these days. Uh, but, you know, any kind of um, transpersonal experience, time distortion does arise sometimes as a sign of uh, an altered state of consciousness. And so I thought, well, that's kind of weird. You know, all I'm doing is just being empathic and like listening to people and uh, trying to uh, totally adopt their perspective as closely as I could and feed it back to them and just develop the most powerful uh, interpersonal um, relationship that I could using uh, empathy primarily, just my therapeutic empathy. And uh, but then I thought, oh no, maybe I'm infecting, uh, you know, maybe I'm the world's most manipulative client-centered psychotherapist. So I had all these uh, recordings, you know, of my sessions. And uh, I was actually studying with the person who ran uh, Carl Rogers' own clinic that he established at the uh, University of Chicago. His name is John McFerrin, he's a wonderful man, uh, very wonderful. And uh, so I, I thought, you know, I would just admit it. I don't know how I'm doing it, but somehow I'm bringing hypnosis into my client center psychotherapy. You know, please arrest me, you know, <laughs> do something, uh, cure me. I'm not meaning to do this, but somehow I'm bringing the hypnosis into the client center. And that to me at the time, at least in a fairly dualistic way of wanting to be the best client centered guy I could be, uh, I thought, you know, I was doing something wrong, you know. So I, I played the tape for John and uh, John is like, wow, you know, this is really good. You know, I was like, oh yeah, you say some more. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, like, yeah, you guys are really close in there together. You're having these I and thou kind of movements that they talk about, uh, moments that they talk about like an existential uh, uh, psychotherapy and you know, were people really feel very, very close. And this sounds very good to me. Then I, I was like, oh, really? <laughs> it's like, it's, yeah, this is good. It's a deep empathy. And, and so then I said to John, you know, do you think it's a bad that I'm, you know, having, uh, you know, time distortion? And do you think it's a bad? And so we talk about these things and he says, you know, if you're, it's causing you to miss things that the client says, and that maybe that would be bad. But it, he says, I don't hear that here. It seems like you're very close and hearing each other very, very deeply and you're really kind of merging. And that's when I started to think, oh, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe actually this is, you know, empathy is related to hypnosis in some way. And I thought maybe, maybe it's possible to induce hypnosis just through empathy. And I thought that was, you know, a pretty simple idea. Maybe there's some relationship. Uh, I didn't know particularly what, but then when I thought about my interactions with high hypnotizables and I thought, oh, that's what it is. That seemed very empathic to me. They're so much more fun to hang with than many times uh, lows, you know. 
uh, those are also fun to hang with. By, by the way, I will say there's a, there's a different flavor of why I like hanging with Lowe's, by the way. Uh, I really enjoyed their uh, uh, critical thinking skills are much more they lean into. And the part of me that's a scientist, they really enjoy dialoguing. Like they'll ask me a million questions about what I'm doing and the experiment and things like that. And uh, I love giving the answers because, you know, I read all this stuff and do the science myself. And so I enjoy that part of them too. But I will say that in terms of the social relationship, it's much warmer. And so I thought, well, if this isn't true, then I should do the experiment. Why not? You know, I'll just go ahead and do it. And uh, so I uh, did my first experiment uh, around 1999, I start, and then uh, uh, first begin publish in 2001. And uh, what it was, was just simply, I had a, a good measure of hypnotic ability, the Harvard instrument. And then I had a nice measure of uh, mm, empathy. The one that uh, at least at the time was the gold standard measure is called the interpersonal reactivity index. Uh, and I uh, got a permission from uh, uh, Margaret Davis who make this uh, instrument. And uh, he said, oh, this is very interesting. Why don't you do that? And so I got permission for him to use. And uh, Harvard already had from uh, Emily Orne in the hypnosis community. And uh, then also I gave telegen absorption scale, uh, which uh, I thought we could use to kind of validate the same kind of correlations we usually see with absorption as a kind of check on experience. And I was also interested just uh, offhand whether absorption might correlate with empathy as well, uh, because when absorption was created by Augie Telegan, he used this very interesting word in the original article. He called it interpersonal absorption. And he thought that maybe there is something about the hypnotic relationship where there was a state of interpersonal absorption, which to me, I said, oh, that sounds like this sounds like my therapy sessions. <laughs> we're, we're so absorbed in one another, we don't hear, uh, you know, the knocking of the people <laughs> you try to come into the room. Uh, a lot of my early therapy sessions uh, took place in emergency rooms or medical offices where there were ambulances and terrible machines making horrible noises and sadly people dying, uh, flatlining and code blues and things. And uh, we could get so into each other that still we could work. So I'm thinking maybe this interpersonal absorption is a part of this too. Why don't I check that out? So I'll give these uh, three measures and uh, lo and behold, they were all related. Uh, and uh, uh, closer analysis revealed that actually there are several items on the absorption scale that are very similar to items on the uh, uh, empathy scale, the interpersonal reactivity index. So I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> of course, you, know, you have similar items and there will be some overlap. Although ironically, some of the stronger correlations weren't with the items on that scale. It's very interesting. So that was the first thing and I uh, went and published that. Uh, subsequently, I began following up on this to see, you know, is there other ways that we could look at um, is empathy related in some way uh, to hypnosis and also absorption? And since that time, I think we did, uh, oh my gosh, more than 10 studies of absorption and uh, empathy. That, that finding is, 
is strange in that I almost always arrive at the same correlation. It's about 0.4. Uh, and so it's very interesting. Uh, a lot of them, it's 0.41. I don't know why it's 0.41, but you know, it's like, it's strange. Uh, uh, but uh, it's very similar in uh, every uh, study that I have all of those. Uh, and then uh, also repeated, um, it's harder to measure hypnotic ability and uh, empathy than it is to measure hypnotic ability and absorption. The reason why is uh, you can just give paper pencil tests for absorption. We don't really have a, just a simple paper pencil test, at least at this point, uh, that measure hypnotic ability. You have to actually do a live uh, demonstration of the phenomenon, which I think actually is, is better anyways. I think it's better to you know, have people really experiencing something. If I had a, 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 a live uh, test of empathy, also I would enjoy that. Uh, more than uh, than what we're using, you know, because paper pencil tests are very much subject to people's uh, uh, ideas about themselves and how they want to present themselves, which is something that I'm always honest with. That you know, because we have used some of these measures, it's always possible that the social context in which I do the experiments, or um, you know, again, how people feel about themselves, like who. Like I actually, when I first did this experiment, I did it with people who were uh, the subject matter. They were all fellow graduate students, you know, uh, studying uh, psychology and counseling. And so I wondered, would anybody actually relate them, uh, rate themselves as being low in empathy? I thought, who's going to do that? And it's like, you know, it was not, you know, data's collected anonymously, but I thought, you know, I thought no one's going to rate themselves as low, but I was wrong. <laughs> there were some people who rated themselves as low. And uh, oddly enough, uh, just like I predicted, they were also low in hypnotic ability. Uh, and then there were lots of people who were in the medium range and there were medium hypnotic ability. It wasn't a perfect, you know, uh, 1.0 correlation, but it's, you know, about 0.3. So, you know, this is not like a strong correlation, but it's enough to show there's some relationship that's significant and worthy of further uh, thought. So anyway, we continued, we did uh, uh, many absorption studies just because those are easy to do. And uh, they were also fun to see, we left the uh, clinical psychology context entirely. Some of those studies were done actually on people who attend the Sturgis motorcycle rally. <laughs> this is like this big outlaw biker event. I've never been myself, but my student, uh, when he rode his Harley out and you know went around and uh, uh, found people to fill out the absorption and empathy instruments, uh, never got beat up for asking. That was a good thing. Uh, but he, he went out there and did it with that. He also did it with people who uh, played the game Worlds of Warcraft. That was a fun one. Um, let's see, what else have we done? Uh, medical school residents, uh, who else? Many different populations. The things that you, oh, uh, people who practice uh, equine-assisted psychotherapy. So we did this all different kinds of populations, not just uh, clinical graduate students. And we get about the same correlation between empathy and absorption, which is about 0.4. Um, so that seemed pretty interesting. Um, and uh, then we did replicate the finding with uh, hypnotic ability. And subsequently, uh, other people uh, 
around the world, uh, very kindly, like Petri here became interested in this uh, theory and uh, particularly because it's testable. You can like actually use these measures and you can see. And so I was actually really happy uh, when other people started testing this because you know, I wasn't sure. You know, maybe there was some weird way that I was uh, communicating some kind of response expectancy that made people think they should build things out or there was some demand characteristic that I hadn't addressed adequately in my own research. And maybe other people uh, wouldn't be able to replicate this uh, finding. So I was, you know, wanted other people to do it. Because, uh, you know, honestly, the thing I love about science is not uh, that allows you to develop theory and, and you get known for a theory and that's cool. You know, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of that if I'm honest, but I'm actually very much into the idea of testing the truth fully, you know, and that uh, in, as a meditator, I like to trust, test uh, all the theories of meditation that have been communicated by my teachers, as they've told me, that uh, you must try these methods out personally. And also, I believe as a scientist, why not empirically as well? We can examine things phenomenologically. Uh, science is a search for the truth. And I feel like why not use any method of science, whether it be phenomenological, personal investigation, or whether it be you know, deep empirical testing. I, I love both equally. Uh, and, and I particularly love measuring things that other people say you can't measure. So another study that I did in this line was to look at uh, transference, because uh, it used to be said that no one can measure transference. Uh, I tell my good uh, colleague, uh, Michael Nash uh, at the University of Tennessee, he invented the world's first measure of transference, which uh, for those of you who are not uh, psychoanalytic, um, coming from Vienna, <laughs> and probably you know about transference, uh, but those who are not, uh, knowing transference, this was like Freud's and other people's idea that sometimes, uh, whether we realize it or not, we relate to other people as if there was someone else very important in their life. Now, I'm saying this in a very atheoretical way because it's kind of the way I think of it. Uh, I did study psychoanalysis. I did eight years of it personally, which I highly recommend, uh, but uh, I'm not a psychoanalyst. But uh, I love the idea of that because that has been my experience, uh, that sometimes in hypnosis, I actually experience the hypnotist as being someone else. Uh, first time I was hypnotized, I thought for sure the person hypnotizing me was this Italian uh, neuroscientist named Gabriel Grattone at the University of Illinois that I studied with. He invented the world's first uh, way of filtering EEG data. This is a real hardcore scientist of uh, EEG. I was studying psychophysiology with him. And so I'm being hypnotized by this Icelandic guy, this really wonderful guy named Oli Polson. Uh, he studied in my dad's lab at the time that I was there. And I, I wanted to, you know, experience the test myself. And then he administered the test to me, uh, Oli Polson, who subsequently has become the world's leading expert in the use of hypnosis and hero bowel syndrome. He has over 50 papers, maybe even over 100 papers at this point. Uh, documenting how hypnosis helps people with irritable bowel syndrome, also biofeedback and some other things, but mainly hypnosis. Um, and so he's administering this test to me, and uh, at some point it switched. I knew it was only inducing hypnosis in me, and then 
at some point it switched and I thought for sure it was Gabrielle Breton. And, you know, we were joking earlier about, you know, uh, accents, Icelandic accent and Italian accent, not at all similar, <laughs> not at all similar. And this is coming from a person who uh, spent, uh, you know, how long I spent? About uh, three months in Italy, uh, one summer, I uh, won a scholarship to do archeology span uh, in uh, Napoli or Naples area. And so I spent like you know a long time in Italy. I know the difference between Icelandic accent and Italian accent, but in my mind, uh, part of what sometimes is called translogic, I apparently needed to hear it that way. And so I thought Gabriel Graton was administering the hypnotic uh, uh, test to me. And when I opened my eyes, uh, there's Oli, and I couldn't believe. I was like, wait, well, I thought you know you were Gabriel. And I started thinking, how did I think that? Why did I think that? And I think it's because of what the psychoanalysts talk about, idealization. There is a tendency of people uh, in hypnosis to idealize the hypnotist. Uh, and, you know, it, there's no doubt that uh, studying with Gabrielle Graton as I was in my uh, undergrad years was uh, one of my favorite things. And he taught me so much about the study of EG. This is around like uh, 1988, 1990s, uh, studying with him. And so I think um, when I got into that, uh, the part of that idealization, I just transferred onto Oli and then he became Gabriel. <laughs> this is so crazy. Uh, this actually was uh, Freud's uh, explanation of what hypnosis was. In the Dictionary of Psychoanalysis, he described, um, hypnosis as a means of influencing people by transference. And uh, so this all become very interesting in the later phase of my development of this theory, when we talk about the uh, hypnotic self elements of this theory. Anyway, so I also look at the transference and sure enough, transference related to empathy and hypnosis as well, as indeed uh, Michael Nash found back in 1989 that his experimental measure of transference was also related to hypnotic ability as well. Um, does it mean everyone experience uh, transference and hypnosis? Uh, probably not. Uh, the correlation is again about 0.3, but some people seem to experience and I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. <laughs> I know a lot about uh, transference also from my years of uh, experiencing and practicing psychoanalysis too. Um, but so all of this became interesting to me in um, thinking about how are we to weave these findings together with the two major theories of hypnosis at the time that I was uh, interested in, which were uh, an altered state theory of hypnosis called a neo-dissociation. And then um, also uh, the social psychological theories around such suggestibility, which still to this day would be uh, best theory, at least for my money, uh, response expectancy theory from uh, Professor Irving Kirsch. What a wonderful man and a, and a great scientist. Uh, I think probably one of the best scientists I've ever known because he's willing to accept uh, the results of experiments that uh, contradict his own theory. Uh, but another story we needn't get into. Uh, and also he's just a wonderful person to have drinks with, I will say here. 
<laughs> but any rate, I was thinking about these two theories and how does this relate to empathy? And uh, I started thinking about uh, first um, uh, near dissociation a lot because I'm thinking about what I experienced with like in this uh, experience of transference of actually seeing Gabriel uh, Graton on Holy Paulson's face. <laughs> because even when I came out of the trance, I kept seeing Gabriel Gautron's, you know, furrowed brows a little bit, you know, on Oli. And I have totally different color hair, you know, a guy from Iceland and a guy from Italy with jet black hair, at least at the time. Uh, I started thinking, how does something like this occur? Yeah, I was just thinking about this. And I started looking into the neurological understanding and the neuroscience of empathy. And it's when I start to discover how similar uh, uh, the brain uh, processing and also the um, what we call autonomic uh, neuroscience, the autonomic nervous system are. Uh, so for instance, uh, maybe we'll start with the brain, a little easier to maybe start here. Uh, we know that in both hypnosis and in empathy, there are a number of uh, brain regions that are share a lot of uh, importance. In particular, uh, the default mode network. Uh, default mode network and hypnosis, uh, actually this allows me to talk about Irving Kirsch, uh, was first discovered to have something to do uh, with hypnosis, default mode network. Uh, ironically, by accident, uh, by Irving Kirsch, he was attempting to establish an experiment that would disprove that hypnosis had an altered state of consciousness associated with it. Uh, I was actually at the conference where he announced these results. Uh, and the funny thing was uh, the person who was doing the uh, fMRI results uh, was just coming to the conference with the results freshly analyzed. So Irving didn't know himself when he started the presentation, what the results were, but it was thought that she would arrive and say what they were. And he was thinking that there wasn't gonna be any you know, unique neural results for the state of hypnosis. And instead she arrived and she has this look on her face like, <laughs> you know, it's like, it like, no, go ahead, say what they are, no matter what, you know? If there's nothing, there's nothing. If there's something, there's something. This is why I was saying earlier, I find him to be the best scientist I've met his uh, scientific integrity is uh, can't be questioned. I mean, even it's amazing. So then she says, actually, yeah, there is <laughs> a neurological index of the state of hypnosis and it's, you know, default mode network. I was like, and then I was immediately was like, oh my God, you know, and then everyone thought, oh, he's probably going to try and spin this in a bad way. Uh, and instead he said, well, if that's the result of the experiment. That's why we are scientists. That's why we do these experiments. And, uh, you know, this is coming after, you know, 30 some years of theorizing about uh, how hypnosis has nothing to do with altered state of consciousness and says it's all about social um, uh, expectancy, social psychological theories. So I thought, good Lord, you know, that's very interesting. Uh, even the person who thought that has nothing to do with an altered state has now demonstrated this. And then subsequently, a lot of other people replicated that result, even in, uh, in Japan. There's all around the world, people have found this. Default mode network is actually indexing hypnosis as 
special state of consciousness. And similarly, uh, people have speculated that the default mode network has a lot to do with empathy. And in particular, that the default mode network itself is a representation of uh, our experience of self. Now there's a whole variety of experiments that get us to that point, which are a little complex, so I'll maybe just say that. <laughs> and if you want to read more about why that is the case, the default mode network has something to do with the experience itself, then you can read my paper. <laughs> but we'll just say now that like when you're having an experience of who you are, like it is uh, me now, Ian, using these hands, you know, telling you the story of my life, that we have a whole region of uh, brain structures that are involved in giving me this experience, that it is I, Ian, who is telling you the story while Steve is in his boat with all these cool books. And there's Petra in Vienna, which I've never visited. We'd really like to someday. Uh, and so there's all this thoughts about who we are and then who other people are. And uh, in empathy research that have speculated that Part of empathy is about creating um, alternate uh, states of the default mode network for other people. So I have a representation of who I am right now, which is the Ian talking about my empathy research. Uh, but also there's uh, an Ian who uh, <laughs> is the daddy and is called daddy. It's actually not so much anymore. Now he's just called dad. Uh, and uh, also there is me who was a long time ago, a rock and roll singer, you know? Uh, and uh, then there was the me who has uh, uh, done a tremendous amount of uh, uh, contemplative uh, study and has spent a lot of time studying with the Tibetan uh, Rinpoches and Nepalese uh, and Bhutanese people, uh, learning their traditions. Uh, and you know, uh, some of these different parts of me have even different names. You know, like when I was young, uh, I had this name, uh, Edster. <laughs> I guess my middle name is uh, Edward. And so the notion is uh, that also we're doing the same thing. Like I have some idea of Steve because we spend now many hours uh, talking very kindly in interviews and allow me to relay some of the wisdom and love I've learned particularly from many Tibetan teachers. Uh, and then now talking about uh, the amazing uh, wisdom uh, lineage of uh, hypnosis, which is the oldest of all the psychological lineages in, in the uh, you know, Western world, so to speak. Uh, you know, we, um, we go back even before the development of psychology. First real book you know, written in 1819, Abe Fari, you know, on the causes of lucid sleep. Yeah. At any rate, so I just really started thinking, you know, like maybe what's happening here, you know, that we have default mode network activity in is a strong index of empathy, as well as, uh, you know, creating empathic selves and understanding of other people. So that uh, it's the weirdest thing, right? It's like we, we think we are living in reality, right? But, you know, research on the default mode network shows that you know, this hand, you know, I'm not experiencing directly, even a pound into my head. <laughs> this is real, <laughs> this is real. But what am I experiencing? Aspect of the default mode network in the parietal cortex, 
the somatosensory cortex gives us the experience of a bodily self. Which is like one of these funny things in the contemplative traditions that talk about no body, no mind, you know, that you don't really have, you know. You only we have representation of a hand. And what's so strange about it is, nevertheless, we are strongly fixated on this illusion of a bodily self. And but also there's the illusion of an autobiographical self, you know, a narrative self. And that part comes from the part of the default mode network. It's a region of brain structures that create the experience of self. Uh, it comes from hippocampus and other areas involving autobiographical memory. And so, you know, I had the story of who I am. And in fact, there are many stories of different variants of me, you know. Uh, and uh, I really uh, start to understand how much a hypnosis is involved in uh, maybe even just a side effect from actually the psychology of samsara that we would talk about in the contemplative literature that there is an illusion of self. We, we don't exist in reality directly. We only have you know, representation like this. I'm looking at my, and not looking, I'm feeling my somatosensory cortex. That's why I'm really feeling it. Feels good. <laughs> and, and at the same time, also uh, the ability to dissociate. Everyone says, oh, dissociation, the most amazing thing ever. Like, oh, how can you not feel something that you, you should feel, you know? But who is feeling the socks on their feet before I said that? Who's heard this? You know, I mean, maybe if the spider was in your shoe, then you did feel, <laughs> you know, um, you know, who is feeling the shirt on your back before I said it? We are masters of dissociation. We never live in reality ever. Ne never once. You were not even born into reality. We had a very wonderful dissociative ability built into our somatosensory cortex. Because who cares what your socks feel like? It, you know, use your neural processing for other important things, like, you know, trying to manipulate your phone and, you know, drink your water. You know, it's really a principle of um, hmm, limited processing is in the, uh, embedded in the general cognitive model of, of mind. They sometimes call this the limited processing model. Your brain cannot process everything. So, we don't experience uh, reality directly because most of reality is fairly boring. Like uh, if you're looking in my background, you will notice there is this tonka there, which I kind of intentionally put there, you know? Uh, but also then there's like the bookshelf with some CDs and books on there. But until I started saying that, right? Were you really like looking at that? Like, oh, what kind of CDs are those? Is there classic rock there or is it goth or EDM? What's, what's there? You don't think these things. We don't pay attention to everything. We don't live in reality directly. We live in experience of reality. And so this became a very important thought for me about how this uh, theory was developing. And I thought, if this all has to do with the uh, creation of the self and how uh, hypnosis is just simply uh, utilizing the normal process is that we are utilizing to create our experience of self anyways. 
then this is really the magic of how samsara is created through hypnotic processes that are we were using all the time. We were using you're using dissociation all the time. Now, is it true that uh, you know because you have this ability, you should be able to use it anytime you want without having to train the ability more? Uh, it doesn't seem to be the answer. <laughs> it seems like anyone can learn to use more, but um, it takes us some training to really use more and more skillfully. Uh, but innately, um, yeah, I have trained people even very low hypnotic ability uh, to utilize hypnosis to, in particular, overcome chronic pain, which is a lot of what I'm doing. I'm working with people who, in some cases, have pain that has no body at all. I work with people with phantom limb pain. So it's very easy to say that they don't live in reality because of their reality. One time I worked with a guy with phantom tongue pain. It's very strange. Like uh, what happened with him was he's in a car accident and he's like yelling out, ah! And then at the moment of impact and it severed the tongue. Here's another illusory resident. Mr. Shen the cat. And uh, he, he had uh, no tongue. And uh, the doctor brings him to me and uh, says, uh, we cannot treat his pain. His tongue is on fire. And uh, even we give opiates, uh, it make him feel a little better, but the tongue is still burning and really bothering him a lot. And so I said, okay, yeah, I, I know how to do this. I work uh, many times with people with uh, phantom pain from amputation of toes and feet from diabetes. And that feel like they have foot, but no foot is there. But still, and they know that they can go and touch and feel no, you know, their stump and, you know, they can touch the prosthesis. And uh, then they say, yeah, but still they feel, you know. Uh, and so then uh, they did this man, you know, uh, talk about his tongue pain. And uh, they, I ask him how this happened. And they say, uh, his brother and him in car with their, they just, uh, both of them had just gotten engaged and also their, um, their uh, what they call it, brides to be uh, in the back seat. And they're all in this car celebrating. They all just newly got engaged. And uh, they got it drunk and drove right off a large hill and all of them die. And uh, he's the only one that lived. And he heard uh, several of them die, gurgling blood and all this horrible thing, their body crushed and uh, he's feeling horribly guilty. This happened. And I asked, you know, what does the pain feel like? It feel like my tongue is on fire and there are twisting blades just twisting over and over. And uh, you talk about but he deserved this because he killed his brother, his uh, bride-to-be, and also his brother's bride-to-be. And so then I start to think, you know, which maybe, you know, I can see by the look on your face, you know, what a horrible situation of this man is in. I think it's a phantom tongue pain. It has a lot to do with his guilt and the trauma. And so... I use hypnosis and uh, EMDR paired together to help him to you know, come to terms with this uh, horrible trauma where he felt like 
he didn't deserve to have a good life. He was constantly thinking that he should kill himself, you know, and uh, came to a different realization after treatment that maybe he should devote his life to making others better and helping others uh, with alcoholism that he had and uh, some other uh, substance abuse he had. He's uh, addicted to heroin. Another reason why he didn't want to use the medication they're giving him. Um, and once that part of it was cleaned up, then uh, what happened is uh, very easily, you know, can uh, just say, well, let's actually pay attention to this time, the one that's on fire. Why don't you just pay attention? And then I do a very tricky thing. I said, I want you to increase the pain. <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's terrible. I don't want to do that. And I was like, no, no, but just, just for a little bit, increase the pain make it worse, make a burn worse, a sharper metal, terrible. It was like wreck your tongue and blood fly everywhere. And, and it's like, oh, it's horrible. Okay, good, now dial it back a little bit less than usual. Okay, now keep it going as far as you can. It's gone. <laughs> oh, this is one of the secrets of uh, chronic pain is make people increase first. <laughs> I don't know why, but intuitively, it's much easier to make worse than, and then if you know you can make worse, then you can make it better. Uh, but all of that, you know, just trying to give an illustration of this, that uh, we don't live in reality. Yeah, it's a, we feel that we have this body. We feel that we have even this identity in this mind. But in reality, uh, they don't have a unified self. And that was the major conclusion of Ernest Hilgard in his uh, neo-dissociation research. It's, a, it's actually, the exact quote goes something like, uh, the illusion of a, of a, uni of, uh, a unified self is an um, attractive one but does not hold up upon examination. And I just love this because this is the same uh, statement coming from uh, Buddhism and Bon and many other mystical traditions about the nature of self. And we, we feel that we have a self that lives in, in reality, but uh, what we have is a representation of that. And actually, uh, Neil Dissociation really showed how people have multiple selves. Uh, normal people, not just people with, you know, uh, with the dissociative identity disorder, or multiple personality disorders, some people know us. Uh, we all have these things. Like I said earlier, uh, there's a default mode network of me that's this guy is talking to you now. And sometimes you've seen me kind of go into, I don't know, my trickster-like self, I guess, you know, uh, sometimes you've seen me uh, talk about being daddy or was a rock, a minor rock star for a little while. <laughs> Very minor. <laughs> I was very minor. Only people knew me in Japan. <laughs> and and uh, some place in Eastern Europe where they play uh, our band. <laughs> Japan, but, is uh, the, Japan is the second largest uh, rock industry in the world. Oh, Africa. well, then, so okay. Yeah. That's not minor at all. Well, thank you, you know. Uh, no, never a concert invitation has arrived yet, but maybe someday. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It's like this: everyone has multiple selves. We're not this one person. And actually, all of these are equally empty. They're all just autobiographical selves. And 
um, there's so much more. Like sometimes when people talk about the emptiness of self, it sounds like this really bummer thing. Like, oh my God, you ain't nothing. Like I remember so, someone has written this wonderful book. It's actually a really good book about Buddhism. It's called Being Nobody, Going Nowhere. <laughs> I just love that. It sounds like so insulting to the narcissistic self. And that's really what we're talking about here is that kind of fixation on who we think we are. How narcissistic is this, you know? And it's amazing like how narcissistic we can get in trying to embellish our lives with, you know, our work on on my wall, <laughs> many books, you know, and, and uh, with Thai from Bhutan and uh, long hair that I'm so glad I still have at age 51. <laughs> You know, all of these are fixations on who we think we are, but they, you know, they're, they're just uh, illusions. You know, they're just, I should say, the quality in which I'm using the word illusory often um, confuses people. So here I'm not talking about illusion versus reality in a dualistic way, and really more talking about fixation and grasp. Because really what creates the suffering is not so much that we have uh, the illusion of ourselves, is the way I understand it, but it's more about how we fixate on it. Like, um, like uh, needing to be. Needing to be me <laughs> has been the cause of so much suffering in my life. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, I even like um, things that I don't want to be me, I get fixated on. Like uh, for a long time, I was very addicted to smoking. And I thought, I am a smoker. I, I grew up in a rural place. I started smoking at the age of 12. I, I enjoyed it. It was wonderful. I occasionally still have relapses, I'll be honest. Uh, but uh, I was so fixated on thinking I am a smoker that it never occurred to me I could quit. And yet, at the age of 30, I did quit. You know, I have a relapse here and there. I am not smoking two packs a day like I used to, you know. Uh, and the biggest obstacle to me in thinking that I could not be a smoker was thinking I am a smoker. And so even things that we don't like about ourselves, we, we fixate on them. That's what the quality of illusory I'm talking about. The idea that we are just one person. And I believe that that feeling of wholeness, this is the hallmark of the illusion of hypnosis. That we uh, can learn to use this magic to actually transcend uh, that illusion and work skillfully with it. Like sometimes in the, uh, you know, uh, Vajrayana and Dzogchen traditions of Tibet and other Himalayan places, they talk about gurus have these skillful means that can like zap you with stuff, you know. And uh, I believe most of that is using the magic of expectancy and uh, neo-dissociation. So we cover the neo-dissociation side of this. The social psychological side of this is much easier to say. Uh, which is that uh, they are totally right. Expectancies do have something to do with uh, how we experience hypnosis. 
Uh, the evidence for that is extremely strong. Uh, so many different studies show that if you give people task instructions around what the nature of hypnosis is prior to people's experience of hypnosis, it will actually tend to experience some people, but interestingly enough, not all people in that direction. Uh, one of the studies that really impressed me that early on was task instructions about what we call post-hypnotic amnesia. And so those studies showed that if you tell people before a hypnotic experiment that the classic sign of hypnosis is not being able to remember hypnosis afterwards, then the experience of people uh, spontaneously experience, so-called spontaneously experiencing that not being able to remember hypnosis afterwards is greatly increased. Is it everyone? No, but it's increased significantly. And so there are so many experiments like this where they give task instructions about what hypnosis will be like, and then they see, do people experience them? And the result in every case is inevitably more people are experiencing the thing that they suggested goes with hypnosis otherwise. That's just one line of research uh, that's easy to talk about in their field. And so well, my feeling is, who are these people that actually are influenced by task instructions in hypnosis and who uh, can develop response expectancies? Who are they? I think they're people with empathy. <laughs> that's what I think, you know? I, one time I asked uh, Irving Kirsch uh, himself, you know, uh, and also Steve Lynn, I was like, uh, do you think uh, response expectancies are beamed directly into people's heads? <laughs> you know, do you think you're just thinking that they, you know, should have more uh, hypnotic amnesia after the experiment is enough? You, you have to say something and they have to hear it and they have to interpret it and uh, bring it into their own experience of self and experience of the world. Uh, and so that is how I believe this theory has actually woven together the altered state traditions with the social psychological uh, work in an empirical way you know, that we have shown actually empathy has something to do with these things. Also, we know the neuroscience of empathy which only we talked about the brain part of it, but there's an autonomic and a endocrine thing. Uh, so I'll just review a few things. Uh, one of the primary things in the autonomic area is uh, what we call cardiac variability, you know? And uh, so we know that in both hypnosis and empathy, you can see that there is an increase in uh, cardiac variability when that experience is happening of intimacy. And then also, uh, it, uh, most amazingly to me is a study done by Richard Bryant on oxytocin. So oxytocin is one of these uh, you know, neurohormones, so to speak, that uh, we know is involved in intimacy. Indeed, you can uh, give to uh, conflictual couples and then they'll seem to have, help actually uh, them uh, to do work in couples therapy. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, however, uh, Richard Bryant did a study where they administer uh, nasally, uh, they give the oxytocin in a kind of like nasal uh, device, you know, this spray, I guess, of some sort. I don't actually quite understand, but they give, uh, administer nasally. And uh, then uh, it actually increased people's hypnotic ability as well. Very interesting. Uh, so there are many things about the uh, neuroscience, 
uh, and then uh, phenomenology and just basic research in hypnosis that both I and many other people have done. And subsequently people followed up on my stuff like David Terhoon, uh, you know, at Oxford did followed up on my thing. Uh, and uh, he got similar results of Burkhard Peter and some of the German people also, uh, they follow up too and come to similar ideas. And there's been other kinds of replications and this kind of thing. And uh, to me, uh, I feel like uh, this will solve that first mystery, which is, you know, what is this an altered state? Is this uh, social psychological? It is a both. And uh, it has, there are different kinds of people. And there, you know, some, some people def definitely deeply influenced, you know, empathically by hypnosis. Yeah. And some people also get very different altered state things from this. However, not everyone. And I think, again, this has something to do with uh, unique differences in empathy really predict this. Uh, and I'm very interested in uh, just in general with that. But also, uh, I feel like this uh, work really revealed to me what the nature of hypnosis was. Hip nature of hypnosis in the experience of the illusion of self. You know, this, you know, we, we, we've known many years, you know, that experience of self has a lot to do with empathy. In fact, that is a Carl Rogers main theory of why we suffer in life is because we have empathy. <laughs> it says, if you, if you didn't have empathy, then you would not suffer the same way. It says uh, you are experiencing a state of mind called incongruence. And this comes from like when we hang out in the world, we learn people like certain things and they don't like others about us and who we think we are. And so we like tune certain things out and then we tune other things in. People like my long hair, how wonderful. <laughs> Actually, that's not even true, but I like it. <laughs> I'm very attached to this. I've revealed many times. Uh, and so a lot of times, yeah, we have these feelings like some people don't like this thing about me. Uh, just to be uh, honest, uh, one of the things I didn't like about myself growing up was that I'm not white. And uh, I'm fairly, uh, you know, fair complected for Sri Lankan uh, boy. But I didn't like that growing up. I didn't. I wished I looked like all the rest of the, you know, uh, country boys that live around me. You know, and uh, why did I have to look a different and this kind of thing? And uh, and so, what was making me think that my damn empathy? <laughs> I was like, God damn it! I love this empathy, and also, you know, I create this experience. I am different than the other people. I'm not as good as them. Uh, they are better than me. That's kind of simplifying how I thought about it, but it's very interesting. I create this whole experience of myself that caused that I then fixated on, and then also I'm a smoker and all kinds of things I didn't like. Uh, I'm an anxious person. I began started to become very anxious and thought I was less good as people who had more confidence and. Uh, it's like I had this whole theory of who I was that I was so fixated on that just horrible. It's like I, I thought I had a broken brain at that point. And it's just, just absolutely terrible to fixate on yourself that way. Uh, 
totally unnecessary. I had lots of friends who would have told me, you're not that way, but that's, you know, how I, I was. I was just glad I had some friends, actually. Uh, and so, you know, this um, social psychological aspect of hypnosis is very profound, both in the experiments, but also, I think, in reality, we're walking around creating ourselves based on the empathic feedback that we get from other people. Everyone is holding a mirror to us. You know, uh, some people are a little more kind with how they hold that mirror, you know. <laughs> some, some show you the whole thing, you know, that's really good. And others, you know, we have this more conditional relationship. Where we're not going to go the whole way, you know. It's one of the great highlights of working with, you know, I think very powerful teacher in contemplative traditions or a very good, you know, client-centered psychotherapist, uh, that they will show you the whole mirror. Hmm. Actually, I wrote a paper on this too. That's <laughs> where John McFerrin in the... Uh, the, the guy I was talking about earlier, you know, comparing uh, how a good client-centered psychotherapist is like a good guru that will show you the whole mirror of who you are, yeah. and then that's enough hypnosis to alter you. <laughs> but anyway, that's a kind of um, maybe uh, you know, two main aspects of my theory and summary are that uh, hypnosis uh, is an inherently empathic-laden experience. Uh, that uh, which we tend to adapt to the um, expectations, uh, bodily uh, postures, many other aspects of things that are suggested to us in hypnotic uh, uh, suggestions, imagery, you know, it will say, think of this, picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. <laughs> you know, you start thinking this. You, know, you, you have to do that. You have to use your empathy in order uh, in a social psychological way. Uh, empathy also involved in how we alter the experience of self in the way neo-dissociationists have discussed. Yeah, um, so maybe those two things. And then the thing that uh, I build on top of this is understanding that this is not just about hypnosis, this is about uh, how we are creating the self, not just in hypnosis, but at all times. And so this led to, you know, my kind of second tier theory that I sometimes call the hypnotic self theory, that the self is actually created by the same processes that by which hypnosis works. And that hypnosis is simply a special case of the normal psychology of how we create fixations and illusions of self and for that matter, the world. And then my most recent article in International Journal of Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis goes much more into this idea of uh, you know, the Dzogchen tradition uh, of uh, Tibet and other Himalayan places uh, and how it relates to uh, hypnosis and that both uh, reveal to us the nature of the illusory self and the illusory world. I think those are the two main things. And I thank you for your patience because Lord knows I've been talking a long time and I have to admit, I love this stuff so much. I would go on talking even longer, but I feel it would not be good. <laughs> thank you very much, Dr. Ian, for that very thorough summary. And of course, for more detail about that method uh, and the evolution of your thinking, you're, there's really quite a lot of papers, I think 41 papers available on ResearchGate, most of which are available to read in full. 
yeah, uh, for the most part. Be. So, and, I've, and I'll link that uh, down below. And I also ought to mention that we've covered some of that detail, particularly uh, your latest paper in our interviews, the previous episodes mm-hmm. we've done together, your paper about Sogchen and hypnosis, and also the paper about client-centered therapists and the Kalyanamitra, or the spiritual mm-hmm. friend or the guru. We, we went, I think, into that pa- paper in, in some depth mm-hmm. in another interview also. So I'd refer people to those interviews if those uh, themes mm-hmm. of feature interest. But now let's hand things over to the second part of the interview. Petra, perhaps uh, you could tell us a little bit about your interest in EIT, the current research you're doing for your bachelor's thesis, and also what questions have arisen out of that for Dr. Ria? Yeah, so we actually are interested in the correlation between hypnotizability and cognitive empathy, which is only one facet of the manifests of empathy. And we assume that the better a person's cognitive empathy skills are, the more likely they will respond to hypnotic suggestions. Mm-hmm. And yeah. now, this brings me to my first question. Since mm-hmm. empathy is such a multidimensional construct and mm-hmm. the main factor of your theory, yeah. there have been several studies that showed a moderate positive relationship between empathy and hypnotizability. Mm-hmm. However, there's also been one recent study by Skakia and De Piscalis from 2020 yes. that found yeah. no correlation. Mm-hmm. That's right, yes. Yeah, and you mentioned in your paper, Mysteries of Hypnosis and the Self are Revealed by Psychology and Neuroscience of Empathy, that hypnosis could be described as something like an enhanced state of empathy. Mm-hmm. Now, that got me thinking of people with low empathic abilities, like psychopaths. Mm-hmm. And yes. according to your theory, um, would it imply that people incapable of experiencing empathy, like psycho- psychopaths, should also be incapable of being hypnotized. Uh-huh. And also, do you have any experiences in your clinical and your research work with using hypnosis on psychopathic individuals? And maybe you could also hint on that, but do you think there's a difference when speaking of effective versus cognitive empathy in relation to hypnotizability? Yeah, this is an area where I feel, I'm so glad uh, people, uh, first of all, let me say thank you for being interested in this and for following up on it. And uh, whatever you find or anyone else finds in the same spirit of the uh, sacredness of, I believe, science and searching for the truth, whatever you find, I will be very excited to see whether it support my idea or not. Uh, These are more like fun games, you know, we're playing with the truth and trying to understand. So whatever you find is good. And, and also, uh, you mentioned uh, this uh, recent Italian study, uh, which is very interesting to me. Um, if it, They did not find a replication. Uh, and so I found that interesting. Uh, one thing I would say, however, is there is a problem with this study from my point of view. Uh, they also measure absorption, and they did not also find a correlation with hypnotic ability and absorption. That is a dramatic difference. And we have like, you know, since 1974, I don't even know how many hundred studies, <laughs> you know, show a relationship between absorption and um, hypnotic ability. Sometimes that correlation is very small, you know, like uh, it's interesting, you know, sometimes that correlation be like when ever the John Kilstrom did one, I think it was like 
0.15 or 0.2 or something. But with so many hundreds of people, it was still significant. Uh, and then sometimes it's a very high number, you know, like point, I don't remember the highest I've ever seen, but, you know, I certainly in my studies about 0.4, uh, 0.3 and this kind of thing, difference. Um, but in that study, uh, not significant at all. And so what I wonder is, is there was perhaps some unintended uh, response expectancy that the instruments would not be related to the uh, instrument at all, like they unintentionally did this. Because if it had just been the empathy instrument, then I wouldn't say anything. But the fact that there is no relationship with absorption, you know, contradicts you know, many decades, <laughs> well, not many, but three, three or four decades of hypnosis research on empathy and hypnosis. So I don't know if that's a right or wrong, but it's worthy of further investigation because uh, that's very strange that uh, absorption not. However, um, now you also brought up an area that I have thought a lot about, uh, which has to do with uh, what kind of empathy may be going with this? So um, that is interesting. You know, uh, I only used the interpersonal reactivity index at the time. Uh, you know, just wanted to use what at the time was regarded as the highest, uh, most psychometrically sound measure, multidimensional measure of empathy that there was. Um, and so I didn't particularly deeply understand uh, the four different scales at the time. And not really thought too much about like which of these might go the most with empathy. I, I did make some hypothesis and the hypothesis was actually the perspective taking scale. But, and that was mainly uh, based on that there was you know, some content overlap between these scales and absorption. And I thought, well, absorption is pretty reliable correlate, you know, maybe, maybe this too. Uh, and then actually empathic concern scale, the emotional empathy one. So empathic concern, um, this is generally defined by Mark Davis and, you know, other researchers of the IRI to be the tendency to feel warm feelings. Uh, when we hear the stories of suffering of another person, like someone says to you, well, just recently I had many sad stories told me about shooting here in Colorado. And a woman I knew, a wonderful woman named Alana, she, uh, she was a shot in this, and she's a wonderful woman who, um, in the psychedelic uh, community here. Here in Boulder, we have a large psychedelic research community and people having fun at festivals. And I met her uh, at many festivals and uh, really wonderful woman. And uh, someone tells me about her dying and I had this feeling like uh, it's a terrible loss. I think about someone so kind and giving so much to so many people, create a business out of psychedelic culture. Yeah, this is gone. You know? it's these, you hear the story and you start to feel there's a feeling of uh, compassion, you know? That's what we call empathic concern, kind of emotional one. Uh, perspective taking, the scale that you're interested in, it's also my original hypothesis as well, the tendency to see things from other people's perspectives and to like 
some of the items talk about walking a mile in another person's shoes, you know, really before making the thought, you know, about another person's judgment. Um, and so this very much ties up theoretically, like with the, you know, Irving Kirsch's stuff, response expectancies. Because again, there's never been, I pointed this out, you know, a number of times at conferences playfully, there's never been any explanation of how response expectancies are communicated socially. My guys, it can't be, you know, I don't know, maybe we do have some kind of Wi-Fi. You know, we're beaming directly into the brain. Maybe Mesmer was right. I just don't know how to make the rays shoot. Or maybe they're happening and I don't see them. I don't know. You know, maybe they're in a different spectrum of light. Uh, I don't think so. I think it's more empathy, you know. And so I think perspective taking is really promising. But I will say that uh, empathic concern uh, actually had uh, larger um correlation than perspective taking in my original study. And I don't know, uh, I don't know if that's really the deal, to be honest. I feel like there needs to be more work to really look at this. I feel like both, both aspects of empathy have something to say, possibilities here to research. Um, one of the things that I have become more and more interested in though is uh, trying to get beyond the paper and pencil test. And really looking directly at uh, measures of empathic behavior directly and correlating those with measures of hypnotic behavior directly. Uh, the reason I like this idea is that uh, and now, especially like on the internet, there's all this stuff about I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an empath, you know? And mostly I read that, I think they're saying, I'm a hypnotizable, <laughs> you know, and I don't know it yet, you know, or I'm, I don't know, uh, you know, I really think this, you know, I think that's what, I'm actually very interested in those people for that reason. They're very good people to study. Uh, and a lot of them show up at my school, Naropa University, you know, well, I don't know. How many? We may have like one low hypnotizable in every class if we're lucky. <laughs> you know, mostly we have like thirty percent highs and you know rest average, and maybe one token low somehow finds their way into our classrooms. We're a very transpersonal institution, um, but uh, I'm very interested in this question. So I'm so glad you're looking at it, um, and I uh, would encourage maybe to use all full scales of the IRI if you have the ability to do that because there may be another of other instruments and you may only be able to use one scale. Um, but since there have been correlations with absorption and empathy, both for empathic concern, emotional empathy and perspective taking, I think it might be best if you could use both. However, um, you know, whatever you can do would be very interesting to me. Uh, the other two scales, you know, on the IRI are also of some interest, but I've never seen anything empirical yet. Um, so the other, other one, they call uh, one is called personal distress. You know, and uh, this one I thought very interesting. I do a lot of work, uh, also. Uh, clinically and then also interest uh, research-wise in the placebo effect. 
So personal distress is the tendency that when you see another person suffering, that you experience that suffering directly. And it's very interesting. Like, uh, I'll give you a funny example. I saw this movie one time uh, with uh, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, and we, we was watching this movie and we were sitting in the front row because it was the last seats left. And it's part of this movie is called The Perfect Storm. There's this scene in the movie where they're on the boat uh, and the big storm is coming and they're trying to catch a bunch of fish before the storm comes. And instead of catching a fish, they catch a gigantic shark and the shark jumps on the deck and starts sliding. The boat is going up and down from the storm and they're sliding down the deck and the shark is coming down with the mouth going, closing like this. And I found myself like up in my chair, like, oh my God, let's get away from the shark. You know, I really felt like this was happening to me. Like I might be bit by this big, I don't know, it was Mako shark or what kind of shark it was. It had a lot of teeth. Uh, and I, then, I, then I realized I was doing it and I look over at my girlfriend and uh, she's doing it too. <laughs> and I was like, oh good, another high, how wonderful. <laughs> but uh, so that is like a personal distress. I, I have not seen this, but I sometimes think there may be some merit there too. Other, other skills, the fantasy scale, that actually has also some some relation too. But the one that the two that really show the most in my studies have been perspective taking and, and empathic concern. I, I recall now maybe someone else, I don't know if it was Devin Terhoon or someone else when they were looking at this a different way, maybe uh, maybe in Devin's study, I don't remember now, uh, where they were looking at this in terms of uh, unconscious mimicry, which is another phenomenon of empathy that's actually was talked about even by Clark Hull in his original book on scientific book on hypnosis. Uh, the first scientific, real scientific book on hypnosis is written by Clark Hull called uh, uh, Hypnosis, a Scientific Approach, like a 1929, if I remember correctly. Uh, and uh, in it, uh, he actually invented an apparatus for measuring people's tendency to mimic other people's body language. Yeah, he actually had an instrument that would do that. It's, very, it's really cool to see this very clever way of uh, measuring people's, what he called postural sway. So like, if I come forward like this, <laughs> then maybe we'll all be like this. You know, I was like, oh, what are we talking about here? I used to do this when I was in psychoanalysis. I, I, would, I would make this body movement like this with my uh, analyst, you know? And I would see eventually, because he was very empathically attuned, he would start to do this too. And then I would see, push it how far I could go. I would start to go like this. Then I would go like this, you know? And then, then he would catch himself. He's like, what are you, stop that. <laughs> this is a wonderful constructivist uh, psychoanalyst, the name of Louis Fouché, a very wonderful analysis I had with him. So good. Um, at any rate, so I, I would say that. And then the third thing you ask about um, uh, psychopaths. And so I actually have a different take on this, which is that I don't think psychopaths actually are devoid of empathy. I think what they're devoid of is emotional empathy. Uh, and they may have a kind of emotional empathy, but it's not one that people generally like to talk about. 
It's Schadenfreude, the ability to experience other people's to other people's suffering as um, pleasure. So, if you look at most empirical definitions of empathy, they don't re always refer to a pro-social outcome. And I believe that's what's going wrong in these people. Uh, I did treat one time a person who I think could very comfortably, I would say, uh, had this sociopathic tendencies. Uh, he came to me, uh, ironically, it's my first client ever. Uh, <laughs> and the teacher says, uh, yeah, why don't you see this guy? He's got really bad empathy. I mean, uh, really bad uh, anxiety is what they said. And so I go into the room with him and because it was a student clinic, uh, we were actually so close that our knees would touch at times. It's a very small room, you know? And uh, he's wearing these sunglasses. And I thought it's because he's anxious, you know, just anxious person. And I could actually, he would, there were mirrored ones. So I could see my own face uh, in the reflection of his glasses. And he did not seem anxious at all to me after talking. In fact, I was very intimidated by it. And it seemed like he uh, likes to make me feel intimidated. And uh, I'm just trying to do client-centered work with him. So one of the things in client-centered is you have to tell people how you're feeling yourself. The three values of client-centered psychotherapy are unconditional positive regard, whatever a person says, you're positive. Empathic stance, you use primarily empathy to relate to them, but also transparency, congruence. So eventually I had to tell them, it's like, actually, maybe it was maybe second session. I said, uh, I know you told my supervisor you were anxious, but you've not talked about it yet. And I asked, and you don't actually seem anxious, you know, it was like, uh, am I missing something, you know? And then he said, now I'm going to tell you actually why I'm here. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, why are you here? You know, he told me horrible fantasies of killing people. And uh, he's a truck driver. And uh, he was fantasized all day long driving around. And he would pick up a hitchhiker and do the most things imaginable to them. I won't say what they are because they're very bad and the sadistic. And I think, oh my God, this is my first client. Wow, why did you give me this person? You know, it's like, oh my God, you know, it's like, but here's the thing I really learned from him. Actually, empathy was a huge part of his fantasy. Uh, it was actually enjoyed the perspective take on what uh, his victims were feeling while he was torturing them. So is that the kind of empathy we normally think of? No, but I think everyone has a little bit of schadenfreude, right? When, you know, someone you've been, I don't know, fighting with and something happens to them, you know, like I remember one time my mom and I was fighting about something and I stubbed my toe in the middle of the argument. And then my, my mom said, see, that's how God punishes you when you lie to me. <laughs> it's just very happy to stub my toe, man. I think it's short schadenfreude is a normal kind of empathy. But uh, normally people refer to empathy in a very dualistic way that is only about compassion. And I understand that because for sure that is a huge part of how we overcome suffering in life is developing our compassion for ourselves. And uh, then we develop more compassion for others and relinquish our uh, 
fixation on their self. So I understand why people think of empathy this way. However, these people really, the, if they didn't have, they would not enjoy what they're doing if they didn't have some kind of empathy. The other thing is some of them are actually very, um, lot of long literature on some of these people, like how skilled they are in manipulating other people. And they don't do that by just, um, you know, uh, being suggestive. They have to use empathy. They have to know something about the people they're trying to manipulate and that they use that information. So how did they get that information? They got it from empathy. And so uh, one thought I've had about this is that maybe they were like the guy that I worked with. I think it was mainly a cognitive form of empathy that he walked around with like that. However, there is this other form of empathy. I don't know anyone knows how to measure this yet. This kind of more schadenfreude in empathy is more like, a, and, and it's controversial to say this because again, this goes against like how people think about empathy and I'm totally fine when people say, that's not empathy, Ian, empathy is a good, that, that's bad, you know, you're terrible, even you said that. Okay, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm very non-dualistic. I feel like uh, all aspects of mind can be used for good or bad and then in between everything. You know, everything is contextual. That's another thing I love about response expectancy theory. It talks about that. Everything is to be found about the nature of hypnotic experiences in the context. And, you know, and also we would say in psychedelic research, the set and setting that people have. So I, I love that part of a response expectancy theory. I never agreed with this stupid notion that people in the altered state camps should fight the people in the response expectancy camps. I'm happy to say in the United States, we overcame that by having many social hours and drinks with one another. So it was like, we may have different you know, viewpoints, but we can still enjoy drinks. <laughs> you got very drunk and have good times doing this. Um, but yeah, I, I feel the same way about uh, empathy. I, I think there are aspects of empathy that I would call empathy, uh, which, you know, I think in empathy, empathy is in the essence, the attempt to apprehend another person's emotional and mental, maybe also I would throw in spiritual state, you know? Um, and so it's not necessary for it to lead to a pro-social outcome. And some empathy experts agree with this and some not so much. I tend to be in, in this camp. So that's why I think actually uh, there are examples of classic uh, hypnosis uh, researchers uh, who did work with very uh, amazing, amazing work with very dark people, <laughs> Martin Orn. And uh, also, um, he actually died here in Colorado. Um, uh, Ego State there, John, Jack, Jack Watkins, Jack Watkins, both interviewed the Hillside Strangler, who was a terrible serial killer. I think his name, Kenneth Bianchi, is his real name. Uh, and it's terrible. I mean, actually, I don't recommend anyone look. That's one of the worst serial killers I ever heard. It's just awful. Uh, but both Kenneth Bianchi and Martin Orne noted that he was high hypnotizable. And that was actually part of Kenneth Bianchi's defense. 
he was trying to say he had dissociative identity disorder and he did not um, commit the murders under his host personality. And uh, Jack Watkins took the position in court. This actually was argued in court. Jack Watkins was uh, argued that he was uh, hypnotizable, but that he was uh, uh, also a dissociative identity disorder and his uh, insanity defense is genuine. He actually uh, you know, committed this in this malevolent personality state, so to speak. Um, you get involved in dissociative identity disorder, you run into these things pretty, pretty commonly. People internalize uh, people that abuse them. Like we were talking about how we take on the default mode network of another person through empathy, or you know what classically was called uh, transference, transference um, in psychoanalysis. And so. Uh, I've treated people like this, even without formal dissociative identity disorder. I think a lot of us are walking around people who said awful things to us and still we hear their voice, dumbass, you know, stuff like this, you know. Uh, and, uh, but in this case, Jack uh, Watkins said, yeah, this abuse he experienced, uh, then he, this part of him live and go out and, and kill these women. It's horrible, really terrible. Also, he had a partner, but we don't need to go into that here. Uh, but uh, then Mark Norton said, no, he's hypnotized, high hypnotizable, but he's faking dissociative identity disorder. And actually, Mark Norton had a good case with this because uh, not, you know, sort of Jack Watkins, the client was reporting that. But Mark Norton actually uh, got a listing of the books that Kenneth Biaki owned prior to being arrested. There actually was a catalog of every book that he owned in his apartment. And there was a good number of books on dissociative dissociation and hypnosis in there. How interesting. In fact, at one point, I believe he had attempted to, um, what do you call, um, hmm, fake being a psychologist. Like he had like fake degree and stuff like this. He was trying to impersonate a psychologist. It's, it's part of, he did many other antisocial things, including Faking being a psychologist, if I remember this correctly. Um, but one thing for sure was Martin Orange said that, uh, yeah, he's faking it. And then uh, Jack Watkins said, uh, not faking it, uh, but both said he was hypnotizable. And one of the main reasons for that is if you talk to some of these people, uh, it's clear they go into something like an altered state when they go into that place where they want to kill people. And so, like the guy I was talking to, uh, Sometimes, uh, like uh, even once now, we're, we're talking more about the psychologists, uh, like Dennis Rader. Uh, he is one that called a BTK. He just lived uh, stayed over from me in Kansas. I never visit him. <laughs> I have no plan to. But I've read. Uh, he talked about going into. I think we called the different modes, and one was called like surveillance mode, like stalking mode, where he would go into this like trance and do. Like totally obsessed with the victim, and by the way, it's super dark stuff we're talking about. No one's totally creeped out, but it's, it's very interesting, you know, very interesting. Particularly uh, like for people who spend a lot of time talking about empathy and positive aspects of compassion, I feel like this is deeply relieving at times. Like, why are psychologists in general love to watch these? You know, the counselors loves to watch this 
horrible serial killer stuff. I think it's like non-dual release of, you know, the looking at the dark side of empathy. At least that's the story I'm telling everybody about myself. Uh, but he, he talked about this, you know, that actually he would go into this like trance-like state where he would just be so obsessed, he would do the craziest things, you know, just like, uh, and, you know, like totally risk everything he have in his life to stalk these people, enter their homes when they're asleep. And sometimes they not even kill them, just like walk around their homes and, you know, like plan how he was gonna murder them and this kind of stuff, yeah. They do this in advance, you know, it's really crazy, like rehearsing it. And uh, then also uh, what they do after they kill the people, and one of the things that helps them to keep from killing further people is rehearsing how it went in the past. And so they create this imagination and they want to have like awful things. Well, they like to have personal uh, objects of the people they killed to enhance their fantasy. So there's clearly some kind of fantasy and imagination akin to a hypnotic phenomena in them um, and empathy. And I wish it was as simple as saying these people were unhypnotizable, um, but we do have, you know, even, yeah, the, the actually, if I remember correctly, Orn and Watkins did publish an article on this experience they had of the different positions they took on Kenneth Young. I think maybe it appeared in the American Journal of Clinical Hypnosis in the 1970s, if I remember this correctly. I remember reading something about this as well. Or maybe just Watkins talks about it in his book, Ego State Therapy, Ego State Theory, with the, his wife, Helen Watkins. They wrote together. Um, but that's a really fascinating question. I really appreciate all three aspects of that question. Uh, I, I, to me, this is all mysterious stuff. And whatever you find in your investigation, I would be very thankful that you did the work, whether it agrees with what I just said or not. Uh, I feel like this is a great mystery. Uh, and Lord knows that it involves the most elusive of mysteries, that one that has transcended uh, spiritual and scientific uh, investigation for thousands of years. What is the self? You know, what, is, what is the nature of the self? What is the nature of mind? And so whatever you find, please do the work and I'm happy to answer any other questions too and uh, you know, consult or whatever, because I, whether it agrees with my thinking or not, I think this is a fascinating phenomenon question. That would actually be amazing. But you were talking about only using pen and paper tests mm -hmm. or testing empathy. We're also only using pen and paper. Yeah. And of course, because we're still living in a pandemic. We have to do everything online. Right. So <laughs> we only we are, we are very limited, I must say. Well, yeah. you know, you're, this is still very welcome and a very valid contribution to the literature because at this point, there are three scales on that scale that have shown some relationship to either absorption or uh, hypnotic ability. And there's also this uh, unusual finding with the uh, Italian lab, um, which, you know, I don't know. Uh, maybe that, that's correct. Maybe absorption and empathy have nothing to do despite, you know, many years uh, of the absorption finding. And so really, this is very valid uh, contribution to the literature. I'm only mentioning for the future, you know? 
because uh, in the future, there are actual measures of empathic behavior. So one is called uh, the facial recognition test, where you're asked to judge another person's emotions. And those ones, uh, while they are not um, paper and pencil tests per se, that can actually be administered uh, via Zoom, I would imagine. You just show the stimuli and then they have to push a button, you know, with uh, the angry, happy, sad, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, and that was one that uh, I was myself uh, always been trying to get to a place where I could do that or some other kind of empathic behavior test. Uh, but what you're doing now is more than enough and it'd be most welcome contribution as a former science editor of the American Journal of Clinical Hypnosis, I will tell you for sure that we'll like that, uh, no doubt, and also the International Journal of Hypnosis and actually Consciousness and Cognition, so many journals uh, would love to study like about this um, and be very valid. So please continue doing. Um, only I'm just mentioning uh, for the future. Yeah. Right. So my second question is about correlates of hypnotizability. And I'm citing another study by Barrett from 2016 uh -huh. that distinguished between two types of highly hypnotizable subjects, fantasizers mm -hmm. and dissociators. Yes. I'm sure you're aware of them, but just for the listeners, Please, dissociators yeah. usually take a longer time to achieve a deep trance state and seem to be less empathic than fantasizers. Mm -hmm. And fantasizers, on the other hand, enter the hypnotic state faster, which confirms the EIT. However, they also show less awareness of subjects and people in their surroundings, which would imply they are less empathic. Now, <clears throat> when I did the Harvard group scale to test my hypnotizability, I did mm -hmm. respond to some, but I did not respond to every hypnotic suggestion. For example, yeah, yeah you mentioned the fly buzzing. I didn't hear that. You think I, it's a fly? <laughs> I, I never keep trying. <laughs> I will, I will. I should be highly hypnotizable, but I didn't hear anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so could you think of factors other than empathy that facilitate hypnosis? For example, being less fixated on reality or the egocentric view of reality, and mm -hmm. also is there a way that I can enhance my um, hypnotizability? Okay, uh, there is a general issue you're raising and there's a very unique, uh, specific, uh, uh, unique idea you have here, which I would want to get to. Uh, well, we'll get to that second. There's a general area to answer in your question that's uh, rock solid. Uh, this will come from more than 30 years of research and in increasing hypnotic ability. And, and my dad was one of the first people to do that research. <laughs> published in a Journal of Abnormal Psychology, I believe in 1972 or four. He showed that using uh, EMG biofeedback can increase people's uh, hypnotic ability. How much does it increase? Does it make a low, a high? No, uh, usually about three points on a 12 point scale you know, for the Harvard and also the Stanford. Um, and so many people did that as well. Uh, Elmer Green, who else? Uh, Ted Barber, um, uh, certainly uh, Steve Lynn, and also Irving Kirsch. A lot of the social psychological researchers have shown 
that uh, using all different kinds of um, procedures can increase hypnotic ability a modest amount or I don't know, moderate amount. I mean, you can make a low, a medium and you can make a medium a high basically. Um, and that's only in like 68 weeks. Extended training may actually go further. Uh, I've never seen anybody do it empirically, but I've done it myself. I worked with a person who was a zero on the Harvard. And I remember forget, it was so funny. When I finished his testing, uh, you know, he opened his eyes and he said, well, I hope that was good for you because I didn't get anything. <laughs> it was like we just had sex or something. It was so funny. And I was like, wow, well, at least he was paying attention, you know. Uh, but he didn't get anything. He didn't even get relaxed. Like a lot of those, at least in Ron Ficala's research, have shown will experience some relaxation, even though not much uh, response. Um, but uh, yeah, six to eight weeks, and you can increase the score, you know, three, four points. Uh, and with this guy, uh, he was a zero at the end. He was a 12 on the Harvard. Uh, it's really amazing, you know. Um, I think uh, part of why this is, is because social psychologists are right. There is a role of being a hypnotic subject. And like any great actor, you, your acting skills get better. You know, you pra keep practicing, then you can get. I have to admit, when I first started hypnosis, when I was young, I experienced no imagery with it. I just mainly got the change in body sensations, which was great because I was trying to get rid of headaches. And so that's all I got. And that's, I didn't care. It helped my headaches go away. However, uh, after some time of working with people in hypnosis, I started to experience the imagery myself. Uh, and also I had lucid dreams and that phenomena of lucidity and, and dreams started to merge with my experience of hypnotic dreams. And then uh, suddenly I had imagery uh, very strongly where at first all I had was like, my mom would say, you close your eyes, imagine you're on a beach. And so all I see is the wonderful purple blobs that kind of floating like a lava lamp in my mind, you know? So I would say, uh, yeah, uh, the general literature shows that everyone, very reliably, you can modify hypnotic ability a modest amount, at least in six to eight weeks. And then my personal experience is if you really devote time, like the guy I was talking about, uh, he had fallen out of a helicopter and had several other back injuries, but the worst was falling out of a helicopter and his spine was shattered. And they had done everything they could to help him with his back pain, but nothing else could be done. And so literally this, the orthopedic surgeon and neurosurgeons all tell him, uh, we don't really have any good you know, spine surgery we can do for you. Uh, even we don't think you know, things like uh, um, spine stimulators and other implantable devices will do much. You're already you know, on the highest level of medication you can get. Even he was on it, what called an intrathecal pump. So he had an internal, uh, internal pain pump that was distributing the medicine inside his body. And even that wasn't doing it. So there was nothing else they could do. And so they said, why don't you go see this crazy Dr. Ian? Uh, and maybe he can, you know, zap the pain out of you. And he had nothing else to do. So he literally came to me very skeptical, saying, not thinking anything would happen. And he was a zero on the Harvard. 
Uh, and I wondered if he might quit right then and there. Um, but he, he literally uh, he had a really good motivation. He wanted to dance for his daughter's wedding. She had just gotten engaged and he wanted to be able to do one dance with her, the daughter, uh, father dance is traditional American weddings. And he wants to do this. And that was about a year away. And so I said, we'll give it the best shot. And I, like I do with every client, I started with measurement of hypnotic ability, found him to be a zero. And so I started him uh, with the uh, biofeedback, which uh, my father's big area of research was matching uh, hypnotic ability level of the client with the methods that should be used for them. They don't use hypnosis, <laughs> no hypnotizables, obviously. Uh, so we use biofeedback and got him into uh, able to do that and relax. Then we try and go to mindfulness, meditation, then hypnosis. And then he is doing everything in hypnosis, uh, including uh, some interventional surgical hypnosis he had to do. Um, and um, so I think that is possible, but the general literature is modest. Um, now, the specific thing you were talking about, I find very interesting. I feel like uh, yeah, the magic of hypnosis does come from how we are creating the illusion of self anyway. Like the, why it seems so illusory is because we're not aware that our normal experience is illusory, you know? And so maybe people who have an advanced insight into the emptiness of self, maybe uh, they have this. It's been my experience you know, working with gurus in Tibetan Buddhism and uh, other mystical traditions, not just them, also the ayahuasqueros, you know? You talk to the you know, practitioners of the, like a uh, rainforest of Brazil and Peru and other Amazonian areas. These people are talking about the same thing, the illusory nature is self. And actually, oddly enough, for ayahuasca, uh, the people have really done this and found just like a hypnosis, a default mode network, uh, alteration is a big part of ayahuasca. Uh, the strangest thing about ayahuasca is they actually reduce uh, default mode network really far down to like almost nothing, like doesn't look like default mode network and other structures are involved now. Uh, I did ayahuasca one time and uh, it totally altered my autobiographical self. Uh, for the, about the first two hours, uh, it's just uh, amazing, beautiful things were happening. They were so healing to me, to be honest. Uh, but then after about two hours, uh, I lost the sense of being Ian or anyone else or the person experiencing ayahuasca. It just felt like I was in this room of everything vibrating. And I didn't even have even that much of a story. That's just the little bits that I can share with you. And it's just, I, every once in a while, I would notice these gigantic beans that were dancing around me, <laughs> you know, and, and, and the shaman, uh, you know, he would sing these songs and uh, I would see his body here. And then uh, my echolocation was so bad that I, I heard him singing in a different part of the room that he was in. Uh, it was so, so bizarre. My sense of self, bodily self, totally altered reality, everything. And I lost uh, time, uh, no feeling of the story of myself. And it was really restful not to have a self for a little while. And 
it's kind of illusory for me to say that because it also that is a story too. I'm telling the story of not having this house. So I'm uh, just trying to give the best impression. But I think you're on to something there, what you were talking about. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember a scale that I once saw on this. Oh, wait a minute. It's the, my, the scale of my friend, uh, Peter Grossenbacher. Uh, someone, uh, people are starting to come up with these scales. They actually, uh, maybe you would enjoy, I don't know. It's, a, it's not exactly what you're saying, Petra. Not exactly what you're saying, but one of the classical things we know about people who report, um, there's just no other way of saying this, who report having lessened their illusion of self and uh, you know, who maybe have become enlightened, as they would say in Buddhism, uh, in Bon and Hinduism, I guess, you know, um, is um, a tendency towards less dualistic thinking. And by the way, uh, I love this because it so much illustrates trans logic. Like a lot of trans logic is all about non-dualistic thought. You know, like the shaman can be here and his voice can be over here. We can accept this in the in both hypnosis and ayahuasca for that matter, you know, or uh, Gabriel uh, Graton uh, can be in Virginia, even though I know he's not. And in, in that I know, I can know, both know that Oli Paulson is talking to me and he can still be Gabriel Graton. I think this is a classic uh, things that uh, Martin Warren in particular wrote about translogic. So I'm wondering if maybe scales along the lines of what you're saying that I've seen of non-dualistic thought may be something to look at. Uh, uh, my friend Peter Grossenbacher uh, at Naropa has invented this very large scale and has been doing, uh, you know, psychometric validation of the scale but at this point, it still, I think it has like, oh my God, I think it has like 130 items on it or something, you know? <laughs> you know? Hey, but they're trying to kind of get to this uh, measuring like people's tendency to experience non-dualistic thought. Um, and so th this, I believe, may reflect on this kind of non-dualistic clinging to the self that may allow high hypnotizables to experience amazing. Uh, like we didn't talk about it, uh, but I write about it in my paper, Amanda Barnier's uh, research, you know, and Rochelle Cox, you know, they did this crazy stuff where they asked, I don't think we could even ethically do this research. <laughs> Not that I, I believe it is unethical, but I don't think I would be allowed to do where they actually ask people to become other people. You know, uh, and they actually lead people with not dissociative identity disorder to imagine that there are other people. And then uh, they challenge this. Have you, have you read this research? It's wonderful. You'll love. Uh, and if you've not met Amanda Barnier and Russell Cox, the most wonderful uh, researchers and very good people, I highly recommend uh, you contact them, particularly about this aspect, because that do try to get create illusory selves in people. Now they're not framing it that way, but that's you know the way I'm I'm talking. Um, 
they try to get people to actually become other people. And then uh, they bring in a mirror and say, you know, wh whose face is that in the mirror, you know? And, uh, and people who really get this, uh, they don't see their own face in the mirror. They see the face of this, you know, person they're role-playing, simulating, you know, uh, in hypnosis with uh, the, the great term coming from Ted Sarban with hallucinated intensity. Now, that was the thing about social uh, psychological theory of hypnosis that has always been misunderstood. People always think, although some people, Ted Barber kind of forward with this, saying that hypnosis was faked, you know, but the real researchers of social psychology, including later Ted Barber, when he got over his ill face, uh, I knew him. He was a good man. He was a really good, man. really cool guy. Interested in LSD too, by the way. He wrote a book on LSD and hypnosis. Uh, but uh, they say that this is not fake behavior. People genuinely experience. So it's not just role playing. The really, it's role playing with Ted Sarban's. You know, two terms are one is it's a believed in imagining. That comes from his writing, and also with hallucinated intensity. So that, that's what the self is, believed in, imagining. And so they show that in their research, they, they get people to be other people, and then they who are you seeing in the mirror? The people who really get the phenomenon, they see the person they have uh, been hypnotized to be. Also, they get people to come in to the room who know them and their you know, general self, you know, who they are before the hypnosis. And they say, who is this person? And they're like, I don't know, who is this? Is this like their wife or their daughter or you know, some close person, you know? Uh, and they don't uh, exhibit any signs of knowing. Uh, anecdotally, I once asked if they did uh, psychophysiological part of this and they were, I think, just starting this. And um, I think anecdotally, I was told maybe by Rochelle Cox, uh, that they don't show the orienting response in the heart rate. Whenever someone comes in the room, you know, then your heart is like, oh, there's a so-and-so, how nice, you know, the orienting response. There is my friend, you know, uh, you have to reliable, whether you realize it or not, your heart does that. Like, you know, you really fall in love with someone, then then you feel this, like, it does the actual flutters much more. But even you see someone just your good friend, like, oh, how nice. There's a change in your heart rhythm. And if I remember correctly, that was the hypothesis they were looking at, whether psychophysiologically even that was true, that the body did not actually respond to the loved one. So um, what that really seems to take, in my view, is uh, a dramatic ability to become less coupled with uh, our fixations on the self. And so that's why I think maybe a paper and pencil test of non-dualistic uh, non-dualistic thinking, I'll just say, I don't know if that's even the right word, non-dualistic experience maybe is a better way. Uh, I think that may get to what you're saying, but I'm actually quite interested in, uh, are you thinking of developing a, a scale uh, yourself on this? <laughs> I don't think I'm skilled to do that, but maybe in the future. Yeah, for sure. Is, I mean, yeah. it's a hard thing to, to use your own scale, mm -hmm. but definitely. it definitely would be interesting. It would, you know, um, 
So I would encourage, you know, keep thinking this way. That is a very original hypothesis. And it was one of the wonderful things about hypnosis is, even though it's been around for more than 200 years of research and theorizing, there are still so many fantastic original hypotheses that can be uh, pursued. And I would highly recommend uh, you to do that specific one. Because uh, for me, that uh, really gets to uh, some of the ideas that I have uh, developed in this hypnotic self uh, branch of my theory that's in my more recent paper. Uh, and if you ever, uh, no matter what you do, I would very much enjoy to collaborate and uh, uh, help in any way that I could. Because, uh, and, and again, uh, with no uh, feeling about this has to come out the way I predict, uh, I find it equally interesting to be wrong, actually, <laughs> and be uh, like even the study, you know, from Italy, you know, like I find that interesting. Because then I wonder, like, what, you know, what is the other possible explanation of that? Uh, and then maybe it's a true. We need to, it's only because that study um, contradicts many decades of absorption research that I question. And I don't do so in a way where I've, I'm thinking like they're bad scientists. I'm just wondering if there was some unintentional uh, context set that the personality instruments were not related to hypnosis unintentionally. But anyway, wow, wonderful. Yeah, I think this is a really good idea you have. Uh, and uh, if you want to increase uh, your own, just keep practicing. They happen for me. Uh, also, practice other transpersonal methods. You know, like uh, Steve and I, as many of the, our broadcasts are about, is like I'm very uh, advanced Tibetan things, you know. Uh, and just recently I wrote this whole paper on the Dzogchen. Uh, there are many uh, great Dzogchen masters in Europe, particularly in uh, France, uh, in the, the tradition I study in. Uh, in the France, we have a wonderful teacher, our, our best teacher uh, from the Ban tradition. His name is Tenzin Namdak Rinpoche. Uh, he's now, I think, 95 years old, and he comes to France. Uh, and we have a wonderful uh, retreat center there. You can uh, go and learn all of these uh, amazing techniques of uh, Dzogchen, uh, which all of them build upon the foundation of mindfulness meditation, which, you know, we just had a whole issue of the Journal of uh, International Journal of Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis on how um, hmm, uh, contemplative techniques are related to hypnosis, but mainly it's about mindfulness. And I do mention mindfulness in my article. Also, what lies beyond, you know, like a one that's called the Togal, where we uh, actually intentionally encounter illusory. Hmm, that's the wrong word to use here. <laughs> we intentionally uh, encounter different, uh, what is the right word used for this? Oh boy. Uh, well, I'll just use the Tibetan word, tigle. <laughs> tigle are visual phenomena that you can encounter in this style of meditation that point out directly to you the, um, the illusory nature of the world, as well as the illusory nature of the self, and uh, have a direct experience of uh, the non-dualistic way in which The deep nature of our mind really works. 
And so this is another wonderful area that where hypnosis really becomes very powerful knowing about hypnosis because we have lots and lots of research in hypnosis around how people experience um, what we call positive hallucinations and negative hallucinations, like imagining, you know, like, you know, uh, elephant dancing behind my head right now. <laughs> you know, imagine like rays of light shining down. <laughs> or, or, I don't know, a person attacking me with a baseball bat. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we know everything about how that occurs, you know, uh, in terms of hypnosis. Uh, people have done great studies like Steve Cosman really show actually we use the same structures in, in that we would normally use to see something to create visual hallucinations. That's, that's a short way of describing his research. Um, and so in the Dzogchen, uh, we use this as a way of demonstrating. You know, fantasy is as real as reality. And yet, uh, there are some hypnosis theorists that, like Dzogchen, say that there is something deeper, in, uh, which in Dzogchen, uh, which means a great perfection in uh, Tibetan, means uh, there is a nature of mind beyond our fixation of who we think we are and what we think the world is. And that, that one has perfect knowledge and has a perfect love you know, perfect wisdom and um, has no particular fixation on anything. And uh, even when you thought you were fucking things up, it was sort of playing with you to try and teach you something. Sometimes this thought, even when you're heavily involved in illusion that actually uh, this was all part of the game of self or this I seem to be playing. <laughs> oh Lord. I played many games with myself, uh, but um, we have something like this in hypnosis too. Now, I've been developing this a little bit, you know, the transpersonal view of hypnosis. Uh, I feel there is a deep nature of mind that influences things that happen in hypnosis. And then also there's Milton Erickson. And Milton Erickson talked many times in his writings probably one of his most important theoretical concepts was that the unconscious mind had its own wisdom that could be trusted. And a lot of uh, clinical hypnosis and hypnoanalysis reflects this dynamic where you put people in a situation and rather than try and change the belief with the, you know, I want you to believe this way instead of that way, you just put the person in the situation and let them experience what they are and trust that they will you know, learn what they need to. Like a classic example might be you get a person who's, uh, let's say, very depressed, you know, to be in uh, a table, sitting, imagine sitting at a table, and there's a part of them that's depressed. Okay, now here's the part of you that used to be uh, happy. I want you to have a dialogue with these two parts of you. See what you learn. Oh, wow, there's part of me that knew how to be happy. I, I was doing all these things in the past, like, uh, you know, I don't know, going bowling or something. I was going dancing at night and I, you know, I hung out with my friends and the depressed one, you know, I 
uh, do anything. <laughs> and I'm depressed. Maybe we should become friends. <laughs> you know, like, you don't have to even have to say anything. You just get these two parts to the dialogue. And so Erickson said, the reason you can do that, you don't have to say, okay, uh, there's a part of you that's depressed and now I'm sitting at the table with you. Sometimes we do put ourselves in that, but mostly uh, I save that for a very special occasion and usually more silly. Um, or if I, the person needs some comfort, then I'll say, I'm there with you. But mostly I would like the person to be there in dialogue with themselves. And we trust that the unconscious mind will actually is wiser than the conscious mind. That's what Erickson said. Your unconscious knows. And I believe uh, so, uh, Erickson had like many uh, great hypnosis clinicians uh, understanding that our unconscious mind is something like what we would call the nature of mind. Now, I think the concept of conscious and unconscious probably doesn't fit the Dzogchen model at all. Because actually, Dzogchen would say that our conscious mind is actually unconscious. And if you want to get conscious, then first you must do things like mindfulness, meditation, lucid dreaming, and learn to actually be awake. Like, uh, it's actually one of the funniest things about research in hypnosis that shows, just like mindfulness meditation, how complex many human behaviors can be exhibited by people who are in trance dreaming-like state. And that things that we would think you have to be conscious for, you don't actually have to be at all. Uh, how little consciousness it takes to be a, a human being is so funny. Uh, and Dzogchen really says this, that first you must actually become awake. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and realize that actually maybe first you must realize you're dreaming <laughs> in order to, to become awake. I don't know. Maybe this, that's how it's worked for me. I spend more time realizing how little I am awake. You know? But yeah, I just would encourage, you know, uh, uh, our tradition of hypnosis is, you know, good over 200 years old. I tend to start it with Abbe Faria and you know, 1819. Um, there were some other people like Mark, Marquis de Persigay. He understood the psychological nature of animal magnetism. And Benjamin Franklin was on to some stuff too. But I'd like to start with Abbe Fari, 1819. So we had over 200 years of this. Uh, Dzogchen has at least 1,200 years, you know, and quite likely the tradition says many thousands of years. And even there's some cave art that suggests this. Uh, so we're talking 200 years versus many thousand years. Uh, plus they're really nice people. They're just, they're fun to hang out with. And if you're looking for high hypnotizables, they're all all there. Study <laughs> that you will find them in Dzogchen communities. <laughs> so I'm aware of the time, but I also know that Petra has an interesting wildcard question. Oh, that, yeah, let's uh, hear it. Is a little, yeah. Uh, I don't know how much of an answer you're going to be able to to give, Ian. You've already been very generous with your time, but I do. I love want this. To, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's great fun, isn't it? <laughs> Me too. I just but love I do want to, to you. But I do want to give Petra the chance to, and uh, you also, Dr. Ian, to hear this wildcard yeah. question, just see how this strikes you. So please, Petra. Yeah, so for my last question, I thought of something completely different, yeah. and it's actually about water fasting. Because oh, four yeah. years ago, I did mm. a three-week water-only fast, and oh, okay. 
it completely changed my mind as cheesy as that sounds <laughs> but it sounds wonderful to me yeah yeah it's i mean i didn't expect to do 21 days but i i don't know how i managed it but you know if you set your mind to something yes. you really can endure hard stuff but i was at a really dark place at the time and mm -hmm. i just had no motivation to do anything and I just felt sick of being alive, you could say. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I wanted to do that to kind of reset my brain. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know if, if you've done other detoxes. Because no, one fasting yeah. is a kind of dopamine detox. And there was also the time when I got into meditation. And I've been meditating daily ever since. And I'm so grateful that, I, that I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. Because I never thought I'd be into it that much but mm -hmm. you know the amazing thing is also during the first few days when you start a water fast your brain constantly thinks about food and yeah. then there's just a switch and then you you have so much more energy for something else and you can refocus and and redirect your thoughts and it was just an amazing experience and I've been doing some shorter fasts and longer fasts in between. You can't do them all the time, of course. But yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed all of them. So I was wondering, do you have any experiences with all kinds of detoxes, like dopamine detoxes or water fast or stuff like that? Yeah, you definitely the dopamine. Uh, what? Uh, the dopamine a detox is very much traditionally related to uh, practice of ayahuasca in sacred ceremony. You know, and so uh, when I did ayahuasca, I guess it was uh, 2018, I think. Um, yeah, probably 2018. And um, so they give me this, you know, diet, you know, what you may or may not eat and this kind of thing. Um, uh, also, though, though I had not done this, uh, I have read, you know, many uh, accounts and biographies of great uh, Tibetan and uh, Bhutanese and Nepalese uh, saints that undergo uh, water fasting and other related dietary uh, restrictions as part of their um, practice of very powerful techniques. So even one, uh, and I practice myself, uh, which we talk about in one video, uh, Tumo meditation. There is uh, <laughs> a lot of potential dietary uh, restrictions and strange processes that you could do. I, I almost there's other people that have written about it publicly, so I'll say one of them is consuming one's own urine, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's very, and also applying to the skin. Uh, and uh, so when I read these things, um, and the one that I experienced was you know, the ayahuasca one. And um, for me, engaging in that kind of thing is very much like how I respond to sensory restriction. And actually, that was my dad's first. Uh, uh, ever study on hypnosis was uh, sensory restriction and using um, sensory restriction as a way of increasing hypnotic ability. 
And that's the way I think of all of these things. And as we work on the unity of our mind-body discipline, then this is what hypnotic ability is. It is about our control over our mind-body relationship and our understanding of its illusory nature. It experientially increased. No one has to tell you, you know, uh, this is an illusion. You suddenly have the ability to alter the self without even knowing how or why or even understanding conceptually. Oh, yeah, this means the self is an illusion. You're just able to do the things like, you know, wake up in your dreams uh, and override sleep anesthesia and get up and walk around. I had clients who can drive their car while they're asleep. And one was arrested for a DUI, actually. <laughs> I was actually trying to stop that. Uh, but it's actually a strange ability, right? And, uh, um, so, uh, yeah, I, that's the way I understand that. And uh, as any, all of these procedures are about altering our transpersonal experience of the self and the world. And so we have all these expectations around eating. You know, and uh, Lord knows, uh, often they're not healthy. <laughs> In my case, you know, these, you know, uh, and uh, there are just that. There are just expectations, and uh, when people undertake, particularly for sacred purposes, I think, uh, these kinds of restrictions of diet, but also. Uh, like sitting in the dark room, like uh, I belong to a tradition where we do sensory deprivation or uh, Dzogchen uh, practice of Togal and all kinds of things and lucid dreaming. And, um, and there's diet part of that too. And uh, all of these things really help, I believe, to um, overcome our normal expectations. Yeah, uh, so we have this expectation of uh, I eat this and then uh, I'll experience this kind of happiness. And uh, if I don't eat this, then I will not be happy. And yet, when we engage in this, we can be very happy. Uh, I've been very strict vegan at times. Uh, I'm not currently, <laughs> but uh, for about 20 years, it was a fairly strict vegan until someone took me to eat sushi and then that kind of ended it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there is something so wonderful about that, engaging in these processes of treating the body in a sacred way. Also, you know, this is like a set and setting thing too, right? It's like your idea about why you were doing it may have a lot to do, then become more integrated with what your somatic experience is. So there's both a natural experience, I think, but that experience is also altered by your expectation of what's happening. So I'm curious to ask you, what, what are you uh, feeling that water fasting, uh, why, why did you want to do? Well, I felt like I had lost joy in small things uh -huh. and I was also eating really bad. So mm -hmm. I just, I've heard a lot of positive things about it, but mm -hmm. I, really wanted to reset my thoughts in a way because mm -hmm. if you don't spend time thinking about food preparing food buying food cooking and stuff like that you have so much more time to think about your state of mind and how you feel at the moment and you also mm -hmm. become so much more 
in one with your body, I think, because you, you start listening to your, your body signals because you're experiencing hunger, but then you consciously flip that and you say, nope, I'm not going to eat now. And I think it really strengthens your frontal lobes, like yeah. taking cold showers, for example. And oh, yes, yeah. Uh -huh. I started doing that recently and that's, it's still really bad, <laughs> but yeah, right. also, yeah, yeah, it sucks every time you get in, but after that, I feel refreshed and I feel like it's strengthening my frontal lobes again. And I'm mm -hmm. all about that. So it was just an amazing experience just to see how you can shift your thoughts because when you meditate for example it's also about catching your thoughts if you're not focusing on your breathing for example i mean there are so many other techniques mm -hmm. but i think it also think, helped me a lot sorry go on no, I, was gonna, I just wanted to say that there's a profound way in which it sounds like you were also working with your somatosensory cortex, not just the, uh, I would agree, uh, you're strengthening the will, no doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, the story of your will, you know, in the hippocampus, and then also um, your bodily expectation, you know, in the neuromatrix and the parietal cortex. Uh, you're really um, gaining insight and direct insight. So, by the way, I, I salute you uh, in that your approach to this phenomenon is experiential. There was a, a terrible time in the hypnosis world, which I, I'm hoping I'm helping to end, <laughs> when uh, you would go to talk to all the leaders of the fields of hypnosis, including Ted Barber and my father, <laughs> and you would ask them, have you ever been hypnotized? And they would say no. I was like, how can you be an expert in something you've never experienced? Well, I'm a low hypnotizable. I'm a sound scientist, you know, and I, I cannot be hypnotized because I am too critical a thinker. And that actually disagrees with the real science of hypnosis. It's so stupid. You know, even Ted Sarban back in the 1940s showed that um, measures of verbal intelligence correlate positively with hypnotic ability and suggestibility is probably nothing to do with this. Well, non-hypnotic suggestibility. And so I salute you in that uh, you are investigating personally the phenomenon. And I highly encourage you to keep drawing uh, insight from that into your work. I don't feel that is necessary and by the way, none of those people I mentioned felt it was necessary either. They just kept it on the down low to keep your personal investigation of your spirituality, of your, your health, your mind-body relationship, however you want to think of this, draw from it and bring it deep into your work. Uh, that's what I have done, you know, and most of the people that I know that have been great hypnosis researchers have done the same. You know, they all came from things. Uh, in my father's case, uh, all, all of his research is not all, but mostly is on psychosomatic uh, things, like how people get psychosomatic illness. And uh, his great insight was that it, it, it comes from being either a low hypnotizable or a high hypnotizable. And that was his own ex personal experience. 
and um, I don't think I busted on him. <laughs> I think he would be fine with me saying that. Um, and so, yeah, I would please continue doing that and uh, enjoy the benefit of it. And one of the wonderful things about being a hypnosis researcher is uh, how so many hypotheses, like I, I heard you say today, and even this phenomena of water fasting, I'm not aware of anyone actually doing this experiment. Like there are related ones in sensory deprivation that actually my dad did, and Ari Barabash did one at a polar research station in Antarctica. Uh, I don't think anyone has done fasting of any sort and looking to see if that increases hypnotic ability. Uh, that would be great. Why don't you do that? Do that, do everything you're saying. Uh, these are all original and cool ideas. Please do them. Uh, I, I humbly request for you to do that. Please. <laughs> well, that is a big request. Because yeah, of course. Doing experiments <laughs> with, with fasting is, is generally so hard because I don't know, there's this weird stigma that that you are going to die after two weeks of not eating and it's just not true. And there are so many health benefits as well, but people are just willingly ignoring them, I think. Uh -huh. Maybe that will change in the future. I will try to do my best because that's yeah. really something I'm really passionate about. Maybe because you can do something like approximates it, you know, like just, you know, some lesser form of dietary restriction. You know, yeah, like the yeah. ayahuasca cleanse, you know, or something. You know, for sure. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I just think the really truly powerful part of the yogic tradition is dietary restriction. Mm -hmm. uh, it even gets very bizarre. Like I mentioned, the urinary retention practices and things. Um, so I don't know. I, I if it's very important in Dzogchen, uh, my guess is and other mystical traditions, you know, ayahuasca arrows and things. Um, best guess I have is that it really is important and uh, that it might be that it increases hypnotic ability because that's what sensory deprivation does. It's really good, I think really good. You should try, you know, maybe not the, you know, the most extreme or I don't know, maybe you can do that. You may have trouble finding an IRB that will allow that. <laughs> but, you know, other forms, maybe that will allow. <laughs> well, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you both. Thank you, yeah. Dr. Ian, for being so generous with your time. And thank you also, Petra. It's just so wonderful to hear you two discussing these things like this. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Zeev. Uh, you know, I had to say, uh, I watch uh, so many of your interviews uh, based on your interviewing skill. And I feel like uh, this particular one even show uh, how you allow space to have things happen. And so I think that also is a testament to you and how you allow the space for this. And certainly uh, I'm most appreciative of Petra for your questions and for your interest. And uh, I generally, you know, not expecting, but I generally want to encourage and empower you. You must go. I believe that many of the ideas you have, if you explore them, you will take uh, completely original insights will come from these things. And I just really want to encourage and thank you for uh, initiating uh, with these questions and your interest. And no matter what you find, uh, I think it will be good.
Thank you so much. And thank you, Steve, also for giving me this opportunity. When I was texting you, I never imagined that this would be possible, but now here we are. <laughs> and it was yeah. amazing talking to you. It was so fascinating to just listen to you talk about all these different topics and connecting them. And I feel like I got a better grip of your theory in general because mm. it's such a broad theory of, of so many facets and schools. And I really had to think about the theory for a few days before I was like, no, okay, now I'm getting it. <laughs> But you really helped explaining today. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you so much, Petra. I really appreciate it. Dr. Ian Wickramasekra and Petra Tauchner, thank you very much. Thank you, thank Steve. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.